Episode 258 of the Stable Scoop Radio Show has been hijacked by a couple of well-dressed, adorable fox hunters. We hope you enjoy Episode 1 of Chasing a Fox. Your regularly scheduled Stable Scoop will be back next week. This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode one of Chasing a Fox. Tally-ho. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Equity Manufacturing, home of the amazing Shake and Fork, and Fleeceworks, makers of fine merino wool saddle pads and equestrian products. Visit our sponsors online for details about their products and services. You can find links at ChasingAFox.com. Be sure to let them know how much we love them here at Chasing a Fox. And you're listening to Chasing a Fox on the Horse Radio Network. So here we have, oh my gosh, our first ever episode of Chasing a Fox. How do you feel, Sissy? I'm pretty excited. We love to chase the fox. We do love to chase a fox. And you know, (laughs) well, technically, this episode should be number 258 of the Stable Scoop Radio Show. But we have been teasing Chasing a Fox for quite some time now, and um, it's it's time to launch this first episode. Uh, Sissy and I have been partnering with Chasing a Fox, or under the umbrella of Chasing a Fox, since January of 2013. And um, for those of you who don't know what it is, essentially it's a style guide, and it's primarily for fox hunters, but really anybody who loves horses, anyone who rides, whether you ride the hunters or jumpers or event, whatever you do, it's fun to follow along because we do cover both hunt attire and regular attire. We we give fashion advice because, well, I don't. <laughs> Our style director, Sissy, gives fashion advice because there's stuff to do. We have cocktail parties. We have hunt balls. Right. We have all kinds of stuff to do. And Hello. Right. Right. We might know how to stay in the saddle, but there are a lot of us who just don't know how to dress ourselves. (laughs) It's always good to have a little help. It is good to have a little help. So that's what we're here for, Chasing a Fox. You can find us online at ChasingAFox.com. And we're going to do a show twice a month here on the Horse Radio Network. And uh, you'll be able to listen to it through all the other avenues that you listen to the Horse Radio Network shows via iTunes. Um, You can download it to your MP3 player through thehorse.com, the Chronicle of the Horse, Equestrian Life. All our affiliates will be carrying the ChasingAFox.com or the Chasing a Fox show. So, um, Sissy, what, what, what do we have today? Well, actually... You have introduced me to um, the fellow who is the brains behind fox hunting life. Yes, we love Norman Fine. He's lovely. Norman Fine. And we met him recently at the Virginia Hound Show or the Virginia Fox Hound Show, which was held at Morvan Park earlier this spring. And we got to meet Norman and his lovely wife. And um, Norman was, had just recently published a book called Fox Hunting Adventures. Chasing the story, 
And I'm lucky enough to have a copy of that. Sissy, you have a copy of that too, right? I do. I, it was riveting. I couldn't put it down. Right? I know. Did you read the one about the black bear? Yes. In the cornfield? Yes. I know. And yes. my, my favorite one was the one where he didn't know that he could cross the bank when he was in Ireland. Any reasonable horse. I know. <laughs> that was the best, like the best line out of any any book ever. And in fact, there's a lot of really good quotable lines in this book. And we are lucky enough to have Norman Fine with us on Chasing a Fox today. So we're going to have a conversation with him uh, about his hunting history and his most recent publication, which is the um, Fox Hunting Adventures, Chasing the Story. Yeah. It's a don't miss read for any fox hunter. It's a don't miss read. I mean, it really is. And it's, it's easy to read as well. The chapters are short and engaging. Mm-hmm. It's not like you have, it's not, it doesn't require a commitment. <laughs> not a big one, at least. Not a big one. Because if you're like me, and by the time you hit the pillow at the end of the day, you can barely keep your eyes open. If I can read a chapter or two of this book, I'm good to go. That's true. I, I think I'm living the same life. It's, it's tough to lay down at the end of the day and relax and get your book out and stay awake. So it is a good, easy read. So before this week's episode gets fully underway, we want to take a minute to highlight one of our sponsors. Fleeceworks manufactures pure Australian merino sheepskin and merino wool saddle pads and accessories. Their pads produce a vital thermal balancing layer to pull excess moisture and heat away from the horse's back, allowing muscles to work at maximum capacity without overheating. Fleeceworks Australian merino wool is breathable and hydrophilic, able to hold and store 35% of its own weight in liquid. A longtime staple of the medical field, Australian merino fibers have no equal when it comes to delivering a temperature-controlled, pressure-absorbing layer. The Fleeceworks philosophy, minimum bulk, maximum performance, and they have a variety of anatomically correct pads incorporating technologies and designs that address the individual needs of every horse and rider. Ask for Fleeceworks saddle pads and accessories by name at your local tack and feed store or visit them online at fleeceworks.com. Sissy, are you hunting yet or no? It's it's hot. We're up here in New England and um, there's not a lot going on. Our hunt season is doesn't start for a couple of months yet. What are you doing riding-wise? Well, we have summer hound exercises going on right now. They just started last week and it has been incredibly hot. Uh, today the high here outside of Boston is going to be about 101 degrees. Oh my God. And that's not the heat index. That's the actual temperature. So um, needless to say, I won't be riding today. However, we are going out a little bit. You know, we can't let the horses get all out of shape because hunt season will be here in a minute. Um, so we're, we're going out and about in the countryside as long as we can keep the bugs down. Yeah, just hacking around. We have um, the deer flies are really bad in July. Are they bad up by you? They are. The deer flies and the horse flies. They're like 747. <laughs> they come down with their teeth out at us. But we're all dealing with the same stuff, I'm sure. And tell us a little bit about your hunt horse. You have a solid citizen, don't you? I do. My friend, John, he is an older thoroughbred who was who has never raced. He doesn't have a tattoo. He was bred for fox hunting. Um, it's always been his job. He is the perfect lady's horse. Wait a minute. This is a thoroughbred who was bred for fox hunting? Yep. He never raced a day in his life. He doesn't have a tattoo. He was bred just to go fox hunting. That's awesome. Yeah. So he's got a lot of motor if he needs, if I need it. 
Um, but he has really good brakes because he really doesn't, he never raced. So he understands whoa. He understands which is really great. Yeah, I know. It is a nice I like lady's. a lot of whoa. <laughs> what do you call your ideal hunt horse? My ideal hunt horse is a, what I call a cocktail and cigarette horse. I don't smoke. However, it just sounds right. <laughs> but if you did, <laughs> you'd have a cocktail in one hand and a cigarette in the other. Yes, and I wouldn't even need my reins because he just goes along, he which just... is so lovely um, in the hunt field. As we know, it's not always the case. So I am very blessed to have my friend John carry me around. <laughs> yeah, having a trustworthy fellow to, to escort you through the um, through a day's meet is pretty fabulous. Yes. He's not the most friendly horse. Um, he's not one of those in-your-pocket horses, which is okay. Um, but when you get on him, it's like I can feel him saying, okay, I know my job. Yeah. Here we go. We're yeah. going to have a good day. And, and I don't need a, a snuggly horse if I know that he's going to be the best mount that I could ever take out in the hunt field. So he doesn't have to give me kisses and hugs, but that's, he takes Right. That's what dogs and cats are for and kids. <laughs> that's true. Right. That's true. Yeah. Although I, you know, I could probably tack up my dogs. Um, yeah. What are you doing riding? I am. Well, interestingly enough, my horse has been sitting around like a bump on a log for the last couple of months because, uh, well, there have been some life changes going on here at Hither and Yawn Farm, my little slice of heaven. So my 15-year-old Appaloosa is just getting back into work. And um, he's a solid fellow. We did some hunter paces last year. And now we've just, we're hacking out at like 6.30 in the morning. Uh, I live in a quiet seaside town. So the roads are small. And usually there's some nice, a nice little shoulder. Um, The bugs in my field, I have a nice flat schooling field in which to ride, but the deer flies are crazy. They're monsters. So we just hack down the road and we do trot sets in between mailboxes. <laughs> You'll build him up. He'll be ready to go come fall. He'll be ready to go come fall. He is barefoot. Brody's barefoot right now. Um, I just bought him a pair of easy boots because we had we thought we might have have had some hoof issues, and my vet recommended shoes for hunt season, but I'm trying to hold out. So we're going to see how the easy boot gloves work and um, and getting conditioned, and I don't know, we may be riding with those this year. So we're just, we're legging up. I do have a wonderful clinic to ride in the first week in August with Daniel Stewart, who's been featured on the Horse Radio Network before. He's a former USET coach and a sports psychology or an equine sports psychology expert really helps you get your head on straight when you're in the tack. So we're going to be riding in a clinic with him on August 7th down on the south coast of Massachusetts. That's exciting. That's really exciting. I know. He's great. I've ridden in a clinic with him before. Um, this one's a little bit different, but he's just quality. You can't, It's like, you know, one clinic with Daniel Stewart is like three years of riding instruction. It's just Wow. It's the fast track to getting stuff done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. And so actually, we're going to be moving along now to our first Chasing a Fox guest. We have Norman Fine. Norman is the creator and former editor of Coverside Magazine, which is a publication of the Masters of Foxhounds Association of America. He's also the editor of the Derrydale Press Fox Hunters Library. And his articles on fox hunting have appeared in Coverside, The Chronicle of the Horse, and Classic Magazine. Norman has hunted with more than 50 foxhound packs in the United States, Canada, Ireland, and England. He's based in Millwood, Virginia, 
And uh, Norman also publishes the online magazine Fox Hunting Life with Horse and Hound, which is the place to go for information, news, photos, resources, all of it um, on Fox Hunting Life, both in America and abroad. So before we welcome Norman, we're going to take a minute to thank another one of our sponsors. Amy and I have been raving about the Equity Flex and Fork and Shake and Fork for months now, and some of you might be saying they are just saying all those nice things because they are getting paid to. Well then, let's hear from some other people about what they think. Here is Flex and Fork user Eric Bates, Pasifino owner from Kentucky, on their sturdiness. I've been using the Flex and Fork for almost a year now. I looked it up on the internet as being a quality-made fork, and that's what I was looking for. I had already replaced two or three, you know, the manure forks that you would get at a farm supply store, and I wanted something of, of good quality that would last, and this, this has just been more than I could ever ask for. With the Shake and Fork, you save time and money by just using this motorized fork every day. Here is Leslie from Horse Nation on how much betting she is saving using the Shake and Fork. It really does. It, it um, helps you sift through, you know, so you're not throwing out as much. I think uh, uh, Equity says that it, the forks probably save you a dollar a stall uh, per day in, in between bedding saved and labor, you know, uh, time you're saving, and, and I, I believe them for sure. And then there is our terrific listener, Aubrey, who cleans barns for a living on how much time she saves with the shaken fork. It's funny because you have to kind of slow down when you do it just because you have to let the fork shake for a second, and so it kind of took me a little while to say, okay, just slow down because I tend to do them a little manically anyway just because I have so many to do, but you do them faster. Even even though you're physically moving slower, you're doing the stalls faster. But a couple yeah. of the barns that I do use sawdust, and it's amazing how fast I can go through those barns. And it's pretty much cut down half, and I'm using so much less shaving, so it's going to end up uh, saving a bunch of people a bunch of money of the barns that I do. Okay, you've heard them. It's not just Jamie and I saying this. What are you waiting for? Go to EquityMFG.com and get yours today. EquityMFG.com. You will thank us every single day. Two, one. Well, welcome, Norman, to Chasing a Fox. We're so happy to have you here. Yes, we are. (laughs) Thank you so much, both of you. I'm happy to be here. You started a little magazine called Coverside. Right. And um, that was for the Masters of Foxhounds Association of America. What made you decide to start a magazine or think that one was needed? Well, um, at, that, at that time, that association, the Masters Association, they were, it was really an old boys club of, um, of masters. They kept to themselves and they um, had their meetings and they had their fun, and I just, it just seemed to me like there were thousands of, and, and, and really, and the whole association totaled like 75 people. There were maybe 75, I don't know how many, 700, let's say, seven, 700 masters in the country, and that was the extent of the operation, and it just occurred to me that um, there were thousands of fox hunters around who loved the sport and who weren't getting any information. They weren't learning about it. They weren't um, hearing the history. And, and it, it just seemed like um, 
that was the natural organization that should be the voice of fox hunting. And also, there were lots of new masters coming along, uh, and I would say more than half of the new masters that were being named at the time hadn't even themselves been hunting for five years. So who, I, you know, I just wondered who was going to pass on all the all the great stories and the history and the and the art and the music and all the rest of it um, to newcomers to the sport. So that's why I, and that's so I I I I just suggested I talked to my friend Alexander McKay Smith, who was I mean at that time like the I mean he had written gosh knows how many how many books on fox hunting and on horses and uh, he was editor of the Chronicle of the Horse for 25 years and uh, just a, a brilliant gentleman and um, I gave him my idea and he thought it was good and he suggested I go and see um, Jimmy Young who at that time was president of the association so I uh, he was the master of the Orange County Hounds and I cornered Jimmy one day and, and gave him my idea, and he he said, "Well, sounds interesting. Come and make a presentation to the to the board next time we have a board meeting." So that's what I did, and uh, I faced this sea of unfriendly faces, saying, <laughs> I "Just picture them saying, who the hell is this guy uh, uh, telling us what to do?'" Um, but I told him basically that I told you there are so many fox hunters out there that really would love to learn more, know more, know what's going on. And, 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 and I thought it was time to start pulling the, the fox hunters in the country together a little closer and, and, and um, feel a part of a larger, um, a larger scene. So um, they went along with it. Um, so it was Marty Wood, who at that time was... Um, heading up the education foundation for the MFHA, and he he said that uh, his um, his um, fund would uh, cover the initial costs, and so off we went. And uh, we started with like four thousand. We had I think we put together all the names we could find, and it came to something like four thousand names. Wow! Uh, because they didn't even have uh, they didn't even have the name, the hunts in the country were reluctant to give the MFHA the na- their names, uh, the names and the addresses of their members because they just wanted to preserve their privacy. So they could never get that even that information. But once the once we we started, the first one was like an eight page uh, news newsletter, and um, it was wasn't a too many months. Later, before um, people started, you know, writing in and asking to be put on a mailing list, and within a couple of years, I think we were up to twenty thousand names. Wow! We went over twenty thousand names. So, so it was obviously something that was needed, and and it worked. Did you, do we want to talk to... about your book now? Sure. Well, the the book, the book came along. Let's see, I. I had uh, retired from Coverside, and I was trying to f- figure out what to do next. And it occurred to me that um, there were lots of stories. I had had an opportunity while editor of Coverside for 15 years to to travel around uh, the country and hunt with a lot of uh, different uh, hunts and meet a lot of really great, great uh, sportsmen and women. 
and uh, had had some wonderful experiences. And I, I, some of them had been written up earlier and published earlier. Some hadn't, hadn't, and um, and I dug out some old stories that I had written even before I had started Coverside. First story I ever wrote um, was about fox hunting, and it's actually the second story in the book. And it's, and it's a true ghost story about a real experience I had in, in Ireland hunting. And uh, I wrote that years and years ago, and, it was a, and I sold it to this really fancy magazine, a classy magazine. It was called Classic, and um, they paid me $600 for the story, which was more than I have ever been paid for any story <laughs> since. Was that the first time you sold something that was yeah that yeah you yeah yeah absolutely and of course they went out of business shortly after that so oh dear they were just <laughs> overpaying overpaying for their stories I don't know <laughs> but anyway um about- uh, so I collected some of that old stuff that I had written and um and then I had written some things for Bailey's in England and for Hounds Magazine in England and um, so I just sort of collected them and and I wrote I wrote sort of new I wrote an introduction to each to sort of explain how I came to be there at that time and um, put it all together and it was it was great fun to do and I I still enjoy reading the reviews <laughs> Are you a writer by tra- writer by trade how did you get into writing How did I get into writing well, no. I, my first career was in engineering. I was an electronics engineer in Boston, and I started one of these little companies that sprang up along Route 128 outside of Boston. Which is funded more than a few hunts. <laughs> 128, the money that yeah, comes out I of guess, 128. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Keeps I guess it was, it was, I went to uh, college in this little town, Hanover in New Hampshire, and I, and I had this uh, English, English professor, and he... He would assign us themes. This was freshman year, and, and, and we would write themes for him short, and then we would come to his office and read them to him after. And um, I, would, I'm, I was a very green kid, but I, I'd go in there, and, I, and so I'd read my stories to him, and he'd break out laughing, so I'm trying to figure out why he's laughing. And then after a couple of sessions of this, he says to me, and this, and this professor, I mean, he was, he was a really top English professor. He was a, a very close friend of Robert Frost, and he had taught, oh, I mean, this guy was ahead of me, Bud Schulberg, who was a, a very well-known author and Hollywood screenwriter. And, and um, anyway, so when he told me, he said to me, fine, you should be a writer. So I said, but sir, I'm going to be an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> He sort of smiled and said, well, you know, writing will never hurt. So anyway, that was the first inkling anyone ever gave me that um, I might have some some bent toward that. But as even in my engineering career, I, um, I found myself doing the, the technical writing and the proposals and the, and the um, instruction manuals and things like that, so... And I enjoyed it, but I, but as I say, that first story I ever did, that was a fox hunting story, and uh, it's in my book. Well, that, that leads us to the next question. How is it that you did get fox hunting? How is it what? That you got into fox hunting. 
Oh, oh, I I grew up with a love of horses. I came from the horse side. Not, uh, um, I, I was, as a child, before I could write, I was drawing pictures of horses. Um, huh. That's all I would draw. And Did you have a horsey could, family? No, no. We lived in the middle of the city. <laughs> we lived in Boston. Um, um, I don't know where it came from. Um, I... Um, I think it's in the genes somewhere, and it expresses itself in certain individuals. I, I agree with you. Some of us Ab- are born with it. <laughs> it's like so. an affliction. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I, always loved, I always loved horses. I always thought that they were probably, uh, outside of a woman, the most beautiful create, creature ever created mm-hmm. by, by God. And... Um, I, so it wasn't until really I was an adult, a young adult, that I was able to um, have the wherewithal to start uh, taking lessons and learn how to do this. And who introduced you to hunting? Well, I was uh, at a little a little horse show, um, uh, just uh, at the stable where I took riding lessons, and uh, this man came up to me and uh, he introduced himself as the master of uh, a nearby pack in the Shoba Valley hunt. That was a new hunt in Massachusetts. And and he said, well, he said, um, he introduced himself. He said, you have a nice seat. So I wasn't really sure where this conversation was going. But um, then he quickly said, well, you know, I'm a master of the hunt and um, we ought to come hunting with us sometimes. So that's, that's how it started. And you did. And I, and I have to say, I have to say that I... This girl that um, really had attracted my attention, woman, um, at the time, she had gone. Uh, she had hunted with them. Okay, so the so, real story. So comes it out. really wasn't. <laughs> it was a. It was a really an easy yes. I'd like to do that. <laughs> it was an easy yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. And that's- was your first hunt successful? Like, did it go well? Were you like, oh my god, this is something I have to do for the rest of my life? Were you a little um, freaked out? Oh yeah, no, it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal, and um, it was just—it um, just really grabbed me. I mean, the, the the utter freedom and randomness of where you—I mean, it's not like riding in a ring. It's not like moseying along trails that you know. It's you go out there and you're totally at the mercy of the fox. Wherever the fox takes you, that's where you wind up going. And uh, so this randomness, this chance. Is it, is it, are they going to find a fox? Are they not? You know, it's like sitting there waiting for a bite on your line. Or, um, it was just, just super. And then when we got going and then jumping the fences and, and, um, hearing all the commotion and clatter and, and, um, the motion and noise and wind and all the rest of it. And of course I really knew nothing about hounds at the time, but, uh, it just started out as an exciting adventure. And it know, is every time. <laughs> I, yeah, no kidding. And and you, so you've hunted with more than fifty packs um, right, in the U.S. Right, right. and and abroad. You've been hunting for quite a long time. Uh, yeah, well over forty years. <laughs> okay, well over forty years. And so, uh, one of the the stories that that is in your book, Fox Hunting Adventures, I found really interesting, and it was the first time you whipped in uh, because you had already been hunting for what close to 20 years yeah 20 years by then yeah and so this this new facet of your 
hunting career um, sort of presents itself. Tell us a little bit about that because in reading the book, man, I was my heart was racing and I was right there with you in that that first day. Tell us. About oh, in that. that story. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, as a member of the field, you know, you're under a lot of restrictions, as you know. You, both of you have been there. Uh, to be quiet and um, stick with everyone else and follow the leader and don't get ahead of the master and all the rest of it. But um, at Whipping In, well, I, we, we were coming to Virginia uh, to visit and hunt on holidays. This is before we moved here. And um, we stayed with a, with a fellow who, who had horses to rent and he had a little in for fox hunters, Cliff Hunt and his wife, Laura. And the cliff whipped in to the, Blue, to the Blue Ridge Hunt at that time. So he said to me one day, he said, well, come with me, um, you know, ride with me today, um, whipping in. So I, you know, I, I just jumped at the chance because you get out there and you're totally free. I mean, you're free of all those restrictions and everyone gets out of your way. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, someone says, you know, wear staff and uh, you're coming along and you realize that you're the staff, and everyone's scuttling into the woods to get out of your way. I loved it. Did you, uh, did you puff out your chest a little bit? Your chin I'm up? sorry, what? Puffed out chest and your chin up? <laughs> no, no, I'm not that sort, really. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't let it show, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> only, when I, only when I write about it. Oh, oh, yeah, but that day, yeah, we did. We, we had some really good hunting, and... And uh, and here I and at one I still read to this day. I mean, and that was twenty years ago. Where is uh, Blue Ridge? Is where? We're in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And what's your uh, quarry? West. It's it's fox. Okay. It's ninety nine percent fox. We do have we do have some coyote here, but it's it's not too frequent. Yeah, yeah. It's it's all red fox and. Uh, it's a lovely part of the country. Uh, we're uh, we're just west of the Blue Ridge, and um, so for someone who's directionally challenged like me, all the time, um, at least I can always find would find my bearings in some manner. I know the Blue Ridge is east. Right, you're familiar with where you're going. That's great. So you're um, in this is amazing. You're you're in this beautiful hunt country. It's your first time whip whipping. Uh, in- yeah, and at, and at one point I I, I remember, um, and this was the first time ever for me. I mean, the fox was running, the hounds were running, the huntsman was galloping to st- stay up with the hounds, and there I am, all alone, galloping across these fields with the huntsman right in front of me, no one else, and it was like an awakening. You said, "Whoa, this is really something." So for a guy that spends right. all his spend twenty years in the field, that was really special for me. And then, uh, then at one point, it got it got a little hairy at the end because uh, the uh, fox was taking hounds toward a highway, and uh, a major highway, Route Fifty, which runs from Middleburg through Upperville and then over over the mountain and to us to where we are. And um, so we had to stop them, and we had to really really gallop on down the cinder road and try and get ahead of them, which we did. We got ahead of them. And then, we, and then you know, I mean, I didn't know what to do, but Cliff said, you know, just get on in the woods in there, follow me, and start cracking your whip and make noise and tell them to stop. So that's what we did. But we could hear the 18-wheelers rumbling along behind us, you know, and where we were. 
And, you know, you, you captured the feeling so well in this chapter because when you were writing about this incident, because I could, I could feel the anxiety. I could feel your anxiety as the hounds are heading towards the highway. And the, also the, the hesitation of really using your whip and your voice, that confidence that, that you need. You know, you're, you're a little hesitant, but then you yeah, hear the sound of those trucks, man, and you suddenly find that confidence yeah. and your whip cracks like never before. That galvanized me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And now um, the other story that I wanted to hear about, which <laughs> why is it the dramatic ones that I want, I want to hear about? You encountered um, you, you had something of a surprise in a cornfield one day. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, well, it was um, it was really the huntsman that uh, ran into this uh, interesting thing. Uh, yeah, we were. It was cub hunting season, and um, and the, the huntsmen loved to um, put their young, put their hounds, especially the young entry, young hounds, into uh, these cornfields that haven't been cut yet, because the uh, the corn attracts mice, and the mice attract the foxes. So there are very often foxes in the corn. And and they're hesitant to leave because it's good cover, and they just run around the corn, and and it's a great way of teaching the young hounds how to use their noses. And um, so, before the corn is cut, they they uh, they try to find the huntsman tries to have meets at places where there is where there is still standing corn, and um, we were at this uh, wonderful spot. It's actually um, a Franciscan. Uh, monastery uh, in our hunting country, and they allow us to hunt there. It's absolutely beautiful. You see bald eagles flying overhead, and um, it's right near the river, big open rolling fields and some woods. It's a spectacular country, but we we all parked near this um, cornfield, and, um, and then the huntsman had the field go way down to one end of it because that's where the road was. He didn't, if the fox was going to go out, he didn't want them crossing the road, and he didn't want the hounds following. Uh, so it's a safety thing. So we went out down to that end to, they call it holding up that end of the cover. And he, and he was up further on up, uh, and he put the hounds in. And evidently there was, some, there was some hunting going on, which we couldn't even hear where we were. But um, just to cut to the chase, uh, what happened was he he heard he heard them hunting well, and then he heard a scuffle, and he figured, well, it's probably a coyote because if if they ran into a fox and they had a scuffle, although there wouldn't be a scuffle, the fox would have been quickly dispatched by the hounds. But um, he he jumped off his horse and he he walked into the corn and he and he heard things going on. And he couldn't, and, and he couldn't figure out what it was. And um, so all of a sudden, um, he goes to the, the last little patch, and he sees this black bear um, running straight at him with hounds chasing it. <laughs> and the bear actually brushed his leg on the way by. I, I should have started this whole story with the fact that... He had forgotten his tie, his necktie, and at the very beginning of the hunt, he asked if anyone had a spare necktie. Well, nobody did, but I took off my necktie and gave it to him. Uh, better that I look like a slob than our huntsman. <laughs> so 
so he's in there, and he sees, and the bear runs by him, and and um, uh, brushes by his leg, and and after the after he went goes by, the bear turned, grabbed one of the hounds, pinned it to the ground, and mauled it, and then he and then he got up and ran off again, and I guess one of the whips, um, the huntsman's wife or daughter, they were both whipping him that day saw the bear come out and so they got all frantic so meanwhile um was it a big bear well or does it matter yeah, a bear's a bear few, he said it was a few hundred pounds uh his daughter was a taxidermist and she, and she estimated it was uh, close to 300 pounds oh yeah okay that's, that's, a big big bear. Enough. that's big enough big yeah. enough yeah yeah <laughs> but uh so when we got there they they were um they were uh, the huntsmen, and the, they were trying to care for the hounds. And fortunately, I mean, one of them looked cut up pretty badly, but fortunately, they all survived. They were fine, and they, we did take a couple of them to the vet, and they got stitched up, and uh, they were perfectly okay afterwards. But, but that was uh, that was a surprise. We didn't, don't see that too often. Um, That's very. I, um, I told him I was really concerned about my tie. You could have wrecked my tie. <laughs> It was a regular necktie or was it a stock tie? No, no it was a necktie. We were in uh, rat catcher because rat catcher. it was cub hunting season, okay. early, early, informal season. Well, yeah. one of my favorite stories in your book, Norm, I'd love to hear a little more about <laughs> is the any reasonable horse because honestly, I would have oh. just stayed at the top of that before sliding down. <laughs> Probably one of the best quotes in any hunting story I've ever heard of any equestrian story. Of any story, <laughs> I love I love that story, and that's one that had that had, I had never published that before. But um, that story, years and years ago, well, it happened a long time ago in Ireland, and um, I had I had told that story one night, and we had a couple people for dinner, and um, and this guy laughed so long and so hard at it that I said, "Cheapest, well, maybe it's a good story." So I sort of. But I never wrote it. I never published it until I did this book. But yeah, that was that was uh, that totally unforgettable. It was uh, one of these experiences. You do something stupid like following some guy you don't know, and get separated from every everybody, and uh, and then you run across an obstacle, the likes of which you have never and never again will see. And then the horse winds up doing something that horses just. You wouldn't think are capable of doing, but that's yeah. that's the thing about the Irish horses, the Irish hunters. They um, they're bred to do that. So they're bred to hunt. I mean, they breed hunters, which you know we don't we don't do that here. We breed horses to show, or horses to race, or horses to do this or that. But but um, the ones that don't work out of these other jobs, and they come hunting. Um, but they're they're bred to hunt. They're bred to be brave. They're bred to do all these weird obstacles that get in their way, and they have they have this mindset that uh, well, why not? We can do that. Why not? It's just incredible. I have a friend that went to Ireland this year, and she said we stopped calling them ditches, and we started calling them cliffs by the end of the hunt <laughs> because yeah. they got deeper and wider and scarier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the interesting thing is um, they come back and they tell you these stories from Ireland, and they're obviously not true, but the fact is they are, and the horses do those things. And you do those things, too, because your blood gets up, and 
what seems impossible anywhere else is just totally within the realm of what they do there. And and it's and it and as wild as the stories sound, I mean they're true. Incredible, absolutely incredible. And there's something to be said but, for but, the uh, confident recently word. Recently, a friend of mine was she wanted wanted to go to Ireland. In fact, in fact, I just published um, this, this in a, in my, on my website, Fox Hunting Life. Um, that she wants to go to Ireland, but but she hears all these wild stories like you were just talking about, and she said, I mean, she's a great rider. Uh, her whole family rode. She rode since she was a child. She was an eight pony clubber. She's a super rider, and yet she says she says she's not chicken, but she just doesn't want to be do crazy things at this point in her life, and um, she said, is the hunting really like that? So. I mean, yeah, I suppose you can avoid doing some of those things by going around, and some people do, but when your blood gets up, um, you just want to go and stay up with the hounds, I guess. And, and you do things routinely that, as I said, you, you just wouldn't do here. But it's living. It's a whole different kind of living. You feel okay. yeah. alive. Yeah. You can feel the cells in your body. You can feel your blood. You can feel your brain figuring things <laughs> out. It's, it really is... Being alive in the most tangible way. Yeah, absolutely, and I and I I really fear that's one of the things that I keep thinking I have to write about someday is um, is the lack of uh, is the risk aversion that we <laughs> see today. Here we and, and, you're so diplomatic. <laughs> well, Although I have to say, Norm, when you um, hunted with um, Mrs. Stewart Cheshire Hound, mm-hmm. and you talk about the fences. Mm-hmm. There's some big fences down in Brandywine um, country. It's I can't even imagine doing some of the things that you did when you were hunting down there. Oh, well, I mean they're just straightforward fences. You know, if the horses, the horse is a good jumper. It's not going to be a problem. Right, but fence up. But, fence. but yeah, but they're straight up and down the posted yeah. rails at, at the Cheshire. They're straight up and down posted rails, and no ground lines, no brush in the bottom, right. like, like in the show, like in the show right. ring. No ground but, lines. Uh, <laughs> yeah, those those sissy show jumpers. <laughs> what's a five? Yeah, right. What's a five foot ox or where the top rail comes down? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You know, we we are running out of time. Um, I want to encourage our listeners to um, log on to foxhuntinglife.com or you can find um, Norm and Fox Hunting Life on Facebook. The the book we're talking about is Fox Hunting Adventures, Chasing the Story. It's by Norman Fine. I want to close by reading um, a short segment from... um, from one of my my favorites, it just it, this this segment illustrates how engagingly Norm captures the feel of hunting. It's not just about the stories, but you it it, it really pulls you right in. And um, this was your story about the bun rat and fox, and um, uh, you were on moose. And the uh, the segment goes: uh, his earth shaking stride has lengthened to a flowing grace. All the segments of his immense bulk have coordinated themselves, leaving the earth below us and reality behind. Small fields separated by stone walls stretch endlessly ahead as I succumb to his rhythm. I am a passenger. Each lacy wall floats toward me before disappearing below as Moose flies it and gallops on, the soft green carpet muting the beat of his hooves. Chills. I know. 
The whole book's like that. The whole well, book is like that. Yeah. Well, again, that that, that um, it that made the next the hair stand up on the back of my neck. <laughs> <laughs> so did I say that? <laughs> Thank you very much, Norman Fine, for joining us on this first episode of Chasing a Fox. We hope that you'll come back to join us again. Oh, it was so much fun. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Well, I guess if there's going to be an authority on fox hunting, Norman Fine is it. He is the go-to guy. I mean, he knows more than anything. And and he's put it all conveniently into a book for us. <laughs> And it's a lovely book. I mean, really. And, and you read that, that little excerpt from the book, and it just really does give you that feeling of what the whole book's about. So hopefully people will embrace that. Yeah, they're, they're good stories. And, you know, one of the things I liked about it is that it gives you, if you're not a fox hunter, it does give you a little taste of what it's like to hunt. Now, these, you know, a lot of people think, oh, hunting is crazy, and, you know, everybody hunts at steeplechase speeds. That's, it's not really true. I love the way he said... Um, Sometimes when you're waiting to see a fox, it's kind of like fishing. You know, you got your line in the water and you're waiting for a bite. That's so true. It's yeah. so true. So it's good. And you know what? The other thing about um, fox hunting life is in terms of being the authority, it is an amazing resource for anything that you want to know about fox hunting. I know you rely on it pretty heavily, don't you, Sissy? I do. And, and I'll give Norma a call from time to time if I have a question. So he is the go-to guy. Yeah, well, when he hunted, hunted with over 50 hunts in the U.S., Canada, Ireland, and England. I think, I <laughs> you think can't that's, help me that. <laughs> yeah, that's street cred right there. That's yes, it cred. certainly is. Now, we have our next segment for Chasing a Fox, and it's the Chasing a Fox Style Advice segment. And this segment is sponsored by Sparkle and Boom, new media marketing for small businesses. Visit them online at sparkleandboom.com. What do we have up for today, Sissy? Oh, today's item is the fourfold stock tie. What is it? And why is it better than a regular old stock tie? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) This is your favorite. You love, you love your stock ties. I love a good stock tie, which is one of the reasons why we here at Chasing a Fox designed and are now manufacturing our own stock ties because it's really difficult to get a good stock tie with the quality that you want um, when you get it tied up and it will stand correctly and it will look exquisite. And, you, you know, if you sometimes if you get a, a, a store-bought pre-made stock tie, it's got the hole in the back um, and the hole ends up in the front and it's a little bit thin and it doesn't really cover your the collar that you're trying to cover. So um, the stock tie is a big deal and not everybody gets that. So... Um, the the traditional stock tie for fox hunting is a fourfold stock tie, so that it's different than these the, the pre tied ones that you get that people use in the show ring in the hunter ring or or for dressage. There's a purpose to the stock tie, isn't there? Absolutely, it's not just to look good. No, I mean stock ties were people started wearing stock ties because every single thing you have on out in the hunt field needs to be multi you need to multi-purpose things. So for example, if you have your stock tie on and someone gets hurt out there, which can happen, um, it can be used as, um, a bandage. It can be used as a sling. It can be used as a hound lead. I mean, it can be used for a million different things. Broken Uh, piece of tack, a stirrup leather. That's happened to me before. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah. You're, 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 you're jumping one of those crazy banks <laughs> and you lose your stirrup leather. <laughs> so there is, yeah, there's, there's a, a very good practical purpose to having the full-length traditional stock tie. Yeah, um, I think a lot of the stock ties that, like for the hunters and jumpers and so forth, are a lot shorter. Like a real four-fold stock tie should be no less than 76 inches. Um, or, or the longer, the better. Gosh, if I had an 80 inch or a hundred inch stock tie, I'd be tickled pink. Um, <laughs> it's easier to tie. It looks better. Um, so that being said, you know, you don't want to get one of those flimsy stock ties because what if you do need to use it as a stirrup leather or a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or you're a not king. And it, it does happen. It, it definitely happens. Um, but no, t- tell me a, for a, a little bit about the material that's used because there's all kinds of blends out there. There's cottons, there's waffle weave. The a really good quality stock tie is made out of, uh, it's like a sheeting cotton, isn't it? Yes. It's very thin, um, but very crisp, nice cotton that um, will hold the shape of the tie. So uh, the, the real purpose is to look good. You could be lying bloodied on the ground, but if your stock tie is tied well and it looks great, then you're okay. Everything's going to be just fine. We hope so. We hope so. You'll at least look good when they come to pick you up. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, yeah, you want to have your stock tie be the right material. You want to be able to tie it correctly. Um, and there are some pretty good videos on the web that will help you do that. Or we, um, actually with our tie, we send really proper appropriate directions that, um, you really can't screw up because not everybody knows how to tie a real fourfold stock tie. You know, there's pins, extra pins involved, not just your stock pin. Um, there's the twist in the back, which is, if you've never done it, good to have a direction to get it to lay flat. Um, so there's a little more to it, but in the end, it's a better tie. Okay. So here's a question for you. This is coming from, this is coming from somebody who never has the time to do anything right. So if I'm actually going to invest in the time to properly tie my stock tie, well, first I'm going to invest, I'm going to buy one and then I'm going to invest the time to tie it. The Mm -hmm. only thing I have a problem with is the extra pins. One pin is probably all I'll be able to find. Is it possible to wear a traditional fourfold without extra pins? Of course it is. Of okay. course. But However, if you want to know how to do it, we got, you got to contact Chasing a Fox, don't you? That's, well, yeah. And, but it, it, you know, it always lays nicer when you pin it all, all, all up in the front um, and when it's folded correctly in the back. It just it will last all day. I mean, I see people out in the hunt field and their tie is just horrendous. I know. They do look it a little looks, chaotic. Yeah, it looks like one of my children died it. And uh, it, it was <laughs> sleeping. That's right. And that's the one piece um, in your kit that um, it makes a statement if you do it right. It's true. It's like windows on a house. You got to do it right. Otherwise, it can really mess everything up. Yep. Yep. You could have an exquisite jacket on and beautiful breeches and lovely boots. And you put a stock tie on that's not right and you tie it wrong. You look like you have no idea. And have no business being out there. Well, you know, that brings up a good question. Having business or no business out there. One of the things that I feel is important about your hunt attire, actually any riding attire, but hunt attire in particular, is that 
being properly turned out and being well turned out is a sign of respect for the for your horse, for your hunt staff, for the hounds, and all of the effort that goes into the sport of chasing fox or chasing a drag, whatever it may be. Um, there's a lot of work, and this is these are people's careers. You know, for some, it's a hobby, or for a lot, it's a hobby. But there's also a lot of effort that goes in. And so, when you're properly turned out, it shows a great to me. It shows a great deal of respect for all the people and the animals that that make it such a wonderful event. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's the fourfold stock tie. We will put links to, as a matter of fact, Chasing a Fox does have a beautiful version, which was designed by our very own Sissy Finn. And um, we will, again, we'll put links up to how you can get one of those. They are a limited stock. They will be available for a limited time. So if you want one, you're going to have to hurry up and get one. That's right. All right. So thank you very much, Sissy. Um, I think that's going to conclude the first episode of Chasing a Fox. We will get into a lot more fashion as the weeks go by. It's summertime. Most of us are out with, um, with the hounds either walking out or, or mounted hound exercise. There are cocktail parties. There's polo is in full swing. Uh, mm-hmm. There's lots of fundraisers. So there are things going on. Most of the activity at Chasing a Fox is happening on Facebook because we can interact the most with our fans there. So go to Facebook and just do a quick search on Chasing a Fox. You'll find us. You'll find great photos and style advice. If you do have an event coming up and you need some help either with your riding attire or your casual attire, send us an email. Email at chasingafox.com. We do have... uh, Well, we kind of know what we're doing, and we might be able to help. (laughs) So thank you for joining us today on this special episode of Stable Scoop, actually. Chasing a Fox will be back in two weeks with another great show featuring foxes, fashion, and fun. You can follow us, as I said, on Facebook. What else we got? Uh, If you're a fox hunter and you want to be on our show, send us a message at email at chasingafox.com. We'd love to get to know our fans and hear all your hunting stories. Many thanks to today's sponsors, Equity Manufacturing and Fleeceworks. Be sure to visit all the great shows on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. Thanks for following along today. We'll be back in two weeks with more from Chasing a Fox. 